Well, we're going to go on with Matthew 17, the transfiguration of the Lord. So let's, uh, let's just start with, uh, with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask for your blessing again as we seek to understand your word, as we seek to live again with Jesus and the disciples, his experiences. And we pray then, Father, for open eyes to your word and to your Son. And we believe that we're asking according to your will and that you will grant that to us. And we pray that we might be strengthened in our walk with him. For his sake we ask this, for the sake of all that he was and is and ever shall be. Please answer our prayer. Amen. Well, here we've got the uh, the transfiguration, and I think that I just need to, to go back a bit to the end of chapter 16 that we, we looked at last time. And there at the end of chapter 16, the Lord says, uh, 16 uh, verse 28, that there are some standing here who will not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And the, the Gospels go straight on in each of the, the synoptics. They go straight on to talk straight away about the transfiguration as if that is the fulfillment of what, we've, what, what he says there, that uh, they are seeing the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, I'm not sure that that is the right interpretation, although I don't doubt that the transfiguration was partially a vision of the kingdom experience of the Lord Jesus. Uh, but these... The suggestion that I made last time when we looked at the end of chapter 16 was this, that he says there that these people uh, would die, they would taste of death when they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Uh, and, and that is what really precludes, I think, any major interpretation of, of his words there at the end of chapter 16 uh, in terms of the transfiguration. As I say, I, I'm not saying it's totally irrelevant. I think the records have been put together in that way to, to, to lead on in the way that they do. But my suggestion was that this is talking about uh, people who refuse to believe in him, who were responsible to him, who will be resurrected, judged, and then all too late at the last day, they will see him coming in the kingdom, and then they will taste of death. And he repeats that teaching in other terms, for example, at his trial, when he says, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. You will see this, but of course, tragically, all too late. Or again, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These first century Jews who saw him, uh, understood what he was saying, but chose not to believe in him, will be resurrected, see him in his glory all too late, and then die the death of condemnation. And to actually perceive that it's all true, all too late, I mean, that is the, the fulfillment of this uh, metaphorical language that you read about gnashing of teeth and, uh, and so on, figurative fire, uh, etc., so I just mentioned that because I, I don't think that necessarily this vision that we're going to look at now in the Transfiguration is the direct fulfillment, as it were, of the Lord's words there about seeing the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Because according to Luke, they talk not so much about the kingdom, but about the way that the Lord Jesus um, was going to complete his exodus at Jerusalem. They, they talk to him encouraging him in terms of his upcoming death rather than in terms of the future kingdom. Now, he takes with him Peter, James, and John, verse, verse 1. And normally, Peter, James, and John are the inner three, and out of those inner three, Peter is always mentioned first. 
Now he's the first person who's recorded in chapter 16, as we saw last time, as confessing Jesus as Messiah, the first of the apostles who saw the risen Christ. He was the first to preach to the Gentiles. To him were given the keys of the kingdom. And that was actually a rabbinic phrase uh, that would have been understood at the time, uh, effectively saying that Peter, the person to whom the keys of the kingdom were given, was to be the chief rabbi of the new synagogue. So we can react, I think, too too hard against Roman Catholic kind of abuse of, of the idea of Peter. He clearly was the rock, humanly speaking, upon which the church uh, was built. He was the one who was used to convert thousands of people on, on the day of Pentecost. And yet, of course, the point is that he was the most unlikely sort of guy. I mean, he was the one who publicly denied the Lord, the one who didn't want to have his feet washed at the Last Supper, the one even, according to Galatians 2, who sort of uh, was, was shaky when the brethren from Jerusalem came and said, no, you can't break bread with Gentiles, and yeah, he, he gave in to them, and then Paul comes and says, hey, Pete, what, what are you doing that for? Stick up for your principle, man. And like, oh, yeah, sorry, very sorry. And yet he's called the rock. He's given this name, Rocky, uh, as we might call it. Uh, and yet he, he appears, at first blush, to, to be the least stable of people. And yet this is the great lesson, I guess, for us, that he was the one chosen. Uh, and in God's eyes and in the Lord Jesus' eyes, he was rock solid in his basic faith and his heart for God. And that is, uh, I think, an encouragement to be patient with a lot of the folks that we meet in, in uh, our church life. You, you may think, oh my goodness, you're getting married again. Oh, this time it's going to be different, Duncan. And you think like, you know, this is like your fifth time, honey. Uh, but this time it's going to be different. And you, you know, you roll your eyes. And as the years go by and you look back, some of these folks, you, I've known folks like that 20, 30 years. And reflecting on them, you know what? they got a heart for God, and they're like Peter, Rocky, that actually really believe, although they're here, there, and everywhere, it would appear, uh, in some aspects, some indicators in their lives. And so that's really the lesson of Peter, I think, to all of us, because you know what, we are all basically like that. Keep on failing, we're here, then we're gone, etc., Well, he brings them up into the high mountain verse 1, apart. And so this is absolutely full of allusion to how Moses goes up into the mountain, takes Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu with him, three of them, leaves them there uh, at a certain point on the mountain and goes to meet with God personally. And there's God's voice coming out of the cloud, Exodus 34, verse 5, and it's exactly what you've got here with the transfiguration. And then Moses returns from Sinai with, with his face shining. And this, according to Mark's record of the transfiguration, is what happened here. Although Matthew doesn't mention that. But that also happened with Jesus. And again, came down from the mountain another time and found the, the people basically faithless. They made a golden calf. And Aaron had, had failed. And again, here the Lord comes down from the mountain. What does he find? God's people, the disciples, weak. They couldn't heal someone when he had already given them power over unclean spirits, as it, as it said in Luke 10. He had given them the power to do this miracle, and they couldn't. That's why they say, well, why couldn't we do it? Uh, they hadn't prayed and fasted as they should have done, etc. 
So then the whole thing is very clearly alluding to the whole incident of Moses going up into the mountain. And I wonder whether Peter vaguely perceived that when he he says, sort of way out of context really, uh, Lord, shall we build three tabernacles here? One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Because, of course, Moses went up into the mountain the first time, and what was he told? He was told to build a tabernacle. And so I, I think the, the illusion is clear. Well, what's the point of this? Well, the point is that Peter, James, and John are being likened to the elders of Israel who went up with Moses into the mount. And, and the, uh, the ascent of Moses into the mount was, was seen really in Judaism as the highest point that a man has ever come to God. That there God spoke with Moses face to face, etc., gave him the law, and, of course, Luke 9.32 says that they spoke of the exodus which Jesus should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, again, it was Moses who accomplished the exodus for the people of Israel. But then he was off the scene and he was to be replaced by Joshua, who also used to go up the mountain with, with Moses. So then these three men are being really set up as the, the leaders of Israel going up into the mountain, this huge honor, etc. And who were they? They were just secular men. They weren't even like religious Jews. Uh, they were the secular fishermen. And Peter says in his letter that at the time past of our lives, we did just what the Gentiles did. He was from Gentile Galilee and he lived morally, he seems to imply, as a Gentile. These were not religious specialists. These weren't Bible students. You know, These were guys, you know. Uh, just ordinary secular fellows who God chose. And they would have pretty well said, uh, I think it was Nelson Mandela who said something like, well, who am I to be beautiful, talented, wonderful, etc.? Who are you not to be with God's grace behind you? I mean, that's a paraphrase of what he said. I think it was Mandela It's attributed to him or he used to say it or quote it or whatever. And this is the point, that we all tend to think, well, no, I'm just a little cog in the machine who am I? I'm just one of the mass. I'm just one of the, the, the mass of people who go to church and we've got pastors, elders, managing brethren, arranging brethren, call them what you want. We have the great speakers and I, I'm just some little guy. Uh, and, and yes, that, that is in one sense how we are, but, but the whole point is that we who are such ordinary people are called to no less than the experience and responsibility of some of the greatest leaders uh, of Israel, some of the great Bible heroes. And of course, this was what was so difficult for the disciples originally, initially, to, to grasp, I think. Well, he took them up apart into the mountain. Now... The Lord does this a number of times See, when he tries to take the disciples apart to uh, teach them more. And I think you could argue that the Lord was not expecting the transfiguration. He takes these three up into the high mountain apart. Uh, and in the, uh, the other records, it says that he went up uh, to pray. Luke 9.28, he went up apart with them to pray. And whilst he prayed, Luke says, a transfiguration occurred. So you could argue that he was not actually expecting a transfiguration or what happened. That uh, this was in response to his prayer. Now, Luke mentions that 
he took Peter, James and John, those three, with him. He started praying. And then there was this great meeting with, with God or, or, or with uh, you know, this great theophany, let's say, that this invisible manifestation of God. Uh, and uh, there's bright lights, etc. But they missed it because they fell fast asleep. Now that is so similar with what happened with the same three people in Gethsemane, is it not? The Lord says, you stay here, uh, there's the twelve, and then there's the three, and then there's Jesus, and Jesus says to them, look, you just stay here, I'm going to go over there and pray. And they fall asleep. Now Luke 9.32, talking about the transfiguration, says their eyes were heavy. And the only time in the whole Gospel records where that Greek word translated heavy occurs is in Matthew 26.43, talking about the way that Peter, James, and John in Gethsemane, their eyes were heavy, and again they fell asleep. Now, this is a classic example of where circumstances repeat in our lives. And it explains that sense of deja vu, that I have already been here, I have already seen this in essence. Because God is working with us according to a program. And that's exactly what he did with Peter, James, and John. But in essence, the situation they had on the Mount of Transfiguration repeated in Gethsemane, and again they failed. And again, you know, the Lord's face was, was shining there in, in Gethsemane, just like it was when he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. This is how a good teacher works. Repeat the exercise. If you get it right the first time, okay, let's do it again. Just underline it. You get it wrong the first time, let's do it again. Let's do a different set of variables, but the basic same sort of exercise. And this is what the Lord did with Peter, James, and John, and this is what he does with us. Now, of course, we can't always easily uh, perceive the, the line that he's taking or the thing that he's teaching us. You have to sort of think about it. But that is what self-examination is partly about, not simply oh, write a list of my sins and weaknesses, but trying to perceive the hand of God and the hand of the Lord Jesus in human life. Where is he leading me? Have I not, in essence, been in this situation before? And what happened then? And what was the intention? That's the idea. Well, the Lord was transfigured, metamorpho. He had a, a metamorphe, a, a, another morphe, another uh, form. And Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, and in 2 Corinthians 3, that we should also be transformed or transfigured by the renewing of our minds. In other words, what he's saying is, he's alluding obviously to the transfiguration, but he's saying don't look at that as spectators at a show. Don't look at that from afar and think, oh yeah, Jesus was like transfigured, he was transformed. Let your minds be transformed. That is, that's the message. Uh, and this is a, a collapsing then of the distance between Jesus and us. In the sense that we are not to look at his cross, at his life, his transfiguration, uh, and think, well, that was him there. And I behold that, uh, maybe as the Orthodox behold an icon and say, oh, yeah, how beautiful, that's how it was for him. Yeah, that distance is now collapsed. That, that transformation on him is to be in us, in its essence. The only other time you read about a change of morphe, uh, a change of form in the Lord Jesus, is in Paul's hymn about the humiliation of Jesus in Philippians 2, where he talks about 
at seven stages of humiliation, even to death, even to the death of the cross, and then seven stages of exaltation. And he talks there about how the Lord Jesus took upon himself the morphe of a slave. And the NIV and other Trinitarian translations are totally wrong in talking about uh, his very nature or his essential nature. That, that's not what the word means. He didn't change his essential nature when he was transfigured, nor when he humbled himself to death on the cross. Just, uh, just mention that. Now, I, I've said that the, the purpose of the transfiguration, according to Luke, was an encouragement uh, about the exodus which he should perform in Jerusalem, and Moses and Elijah encourage him about that. And yet, the whole language of appearing in glory, and the language that is used about it, the, the face shining as the sun, the raiment, the clothing, as too white as the light, or white as snow, according to some of the codices. Well, what is this? What, what was the transfiguration about? Was it about the crucifixion? Was it about the resurrection? Was it about the kingdom? And I think the answer is that it was about all three, because the essence of the Lord's uh, suffering on the cross was his exaltation. That's why the Hebrew word for glory essentially can mean that which is lifted up. So when the Lord was lifted up on the cross, what was like the, the acme, the, 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 the pinnacle, if you like, of shame from a human point of view was the pinnacle of glory from God's point of view. And this is what happens in human life. You lose your job. You get stricken with sickness or with a handicap. You lose loved ones. And in the eyes of the world, this is huge loss. This is shame or, or whatever. You, you children become drug addicts or, or whatever, mess up in life and so forth. This can, from the, the world's point of view, is your low point of shame. And yet, by responding to that, rightly, this in God's eyes is your point of glory. Think of the middle-aged or elderly man dying in pain in a refugee camp somewhere in a corner uh, of cancer, uh, forgotten by everybody, nobody, no family there, nobody cares. And you know, he's holding on to his faith, and or it could be in the corner of, a, of a, a, a room in a tenement block in Eastern Europe or whatever it might be. In the eyes of God, that person has attained glory. And yet in the eyes of the world, it's, it's nothing. Now you can't have it both ways. You can't have glory in the eyes of this world and also glory in God's eyes. There has to be the bringing down for each of us, so that there might be in God's eyes the lifting up. That is the point of uh, Philippians 2, the seven stages of uh, progressive humiliation, even to death, even to the death of the cross, and then the seven stages of exaltation. And this is why the transfiguration speaks about, yes, the Lord's death, uh, but it also talks about the glory of his resurrection and the glory of, of him in his future kingdom, described here uh, very much in the, the language of the, the great visions of the Old Testament. Now, incidentally, John's Gospel doesn't apparently mention the transfiguration. But so often, when you look at the things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record, and you think, oh yeah, John doesn't mention that. Well, he does 
but he just does it in a different form. And, and the transfiguration is typical. John 1.14 says, We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And that is surely a, an allusion to the transfiguration. And all the way through John, what do you read about? You read about the glory of Jesus. He loves that word glory and loves to associate it with the Lord Jesus. So I think what he's saying is, yeah, sure, there was a transfiguration. But you know what? The essence of that in spiritual terms was seen day by day in the Lord's life and character. That's a key to understanding John. You know, you open John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and so forth, and the Word became flesh. What's all this about? Well, this is his equivalent of... Matthew and Luke giving the genealogy of Jesus and all of them, especially Matthew and Luke, talking about the physicalities of the Lord's birth. John's just putting that in in more spiritual terms. Where is the account of the breaking of bread? The Last Supper in John, apparently it's not there at first blush, but it is when you read John 6 about the Lord breaking bread when he feeds the 5,000. This is very much phrased and termed in, in the language of the breaking of bread. No direct record of going to all the world and preach the gospel and baptize people. But of course it is there. The idea of taking Christ to the world, uh, the idea of being born of water and of spirit so that we might enter the kingdom, it's all there, just in different, different terms. So then, there, the, the clothing was white, we're told. His raiment was white uh, as the light, or white as snow. Now, that's exactly the, the, the language of the angels at the resurrection. So, as I say, the, the, whole, uh, the whole vision is talking about the cross, it's talking about the resurrection, it's talking about the Lord's... Uh, clothing in glory in terms of Daniel 7 which talks about the ancient of days God himself being clothed in exactly the same way so it's talking about Jesus in the kingdom clothed as it were with the clothing of God himself now Mark 9 3 says that his clothing was white as snow such that no fuller no dyer no fuller on earth could could make them white the implication is this is made white by God And the idea of clothing that has been made white by God in a way that no man could do so, well, of course, this is Isaiah 1.18, that although our sins are red as crimson, yet God can make them white as snow. Revelation 7.14 talks about this great paradox, if you like, of us plunging our clothes into the red blood of Jesus and them coming out white. Obviously an allusion to baptism into the death of Jesus, but also, of course, talking about a life lived in faith, that actually the white clothing of God, whiter than white, whiter than any fuller on earth can white them. This is the, the language of Daniel 7, 9 about the, the actual clothing of the Ancient of Days, the clothing of God himself. The idea is that, that in faith we believe that we are clothed with the clothing of God. Romans Paul puts this in more sort of abstract terms where he says we are to believe that righteousness, the righteousness of God himself, is imputed to man. And this whole metaphor of uh, 
clothing and dyeing, etc., fooling whiter than anyone, any man could ever make it white. This is all putting it just in another way. Now, this, this is so hard to believe, and yet this is the essence of the good news. This is the essence of joy that comes out of the gospel, believing that I, sinner, weak, lazy person that I am in spiritual terms, is really counted. I am counted as righteous as God. That's where the faith comes in. And of course the process begins in baptism, but, but it's all about faith, is it not? That, that God looks at us like this. And Malachi 3 verse 2, incidentally, says that John the Baptist would be like fuller's soap. Now isn't that interesting that John the Baptist is likened to a fuller, someone who dyed, people, dyed people's clothes to another color with a strong soap. And the, the, this clothing is whiter than what a, a human fuller could make it. So it's as if the Lord is just putting that little point in there that you're not going to get here by simply uh, going along with, with John the Baptist. You've got to accept me, who he preached about. And of course this was the problem in Israel, that uh, that generation loved John the Baptist. They thought he was great. They counted him as a prophet to the point that uh, the, the Jewish leadership said, well, we can't really say anything negative or imply anything negative about John because all the people count him as a prophet. They thought he was great, but they didn't accept Jesus. So they had, nothing wrong with John the Baptist, of course, but they had taken John the wrong way. They'd only taken out of John what they wanted to. So I think there's a little hint of that uh, there. Now, Peter, verse 4 says to them, uh, let's make three tabernacles so that you can stay here. Well, uh, three tents, I guess. I, I wonder if this is his response to what Luke 9 says, that they, Moses and Elijah spoke to Jesus and encouraged him about the exodus that he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. And it's as if Peter doesn't want that, and he says, no, 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 let's stay here. Let's do anything to put that day off. Let's, let me make some little tents for you, uh, little booths, and you can stay here. And uh, maybe I'm being a bit hard on Peter, but I do see this uh, looking through his uh, recorded words, that whenever the cross is raised, and we saw this looking at chapter 16, he says, no, 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 don't do it, or don't do it right now. Because he realizes that this implies something for him that he also must take out the Lord's cross. And yet he got there in the end, because his letters, especially 1 Peter, are just full of allusions to the death of Jesus, the suffering servant prophecies of Isaiah. Uh, and yeah, this is really, I think, where we get, where we, we don't like the idea of Jesus dying. We say, yeah, yeah, let me read the crucifixion record, but, well, I'll skim read it because I, I find it upsetting, etc., or we break bread, but our mind is wandering from the meaning of the bread and wine. Our mind is no longer focused upon Jesus there on the cross. And why is this? On a psychological level, I suggest it's because it demands something of us, that the death that he died is the death that I must die. And this is what we signed up to in baptism. Well, verse 5, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and the voice comes out of the cloud. Now, this is absolutely... Moses on Sinai, no question about it, which Judaism understood as the very zenith, as the very peak of human spiritual experience. And these three guys, ordinary fellas, not scribes, Pharisees, not hyper-religious fellas, just ordinary fishermen sort of guys, they're involved in this. 
and they hear this voice. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Now, this was the voice of God himself. And yet the voice was quoting three passages or putting together three passages from God's written word in the Old Testament. And I just read them out to you. Psalm 2 verse 7, you are my son. Isaiah 42 verse 1, you are my servant in whom my soul delights. And then Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, hear him. I will raise up a prophet unto you like unto your brethren. Uh, hear him. To him you must listen. Now, this would have been incredible that they knew these three Old Testament passages and then the actual voice of God actually speaks those words to them and they hear this. Uh, classic proof of inspiration. It would have been very powerful that the, the written word of God is then, was then repeated to them by the actual voice of God. The literal voice of God repeated his written word to them. It would have been a, a classic uh, evidence of inspiration. Now, when he says, this is my beloved son, hear him, this is Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, where it says that the prophet that would be raised up unto Israel, uh, Messiah, would be heard. Unto him you shall hear, you shall listen, you shall be obedient. And yet, Peter appears to have not done that at the time, because he falls asleep, like you know, James and John do. And yet in Acts 3 verse 22, Peter quotes Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 about Jesus and says, Now hear him and be baptized. It's almost as if he's saying, Yeah, look, that, that passage was sort of quoted to me by God himself, and I didn't, I just fell asleep. But you learn from my mistake, and you hear him. In any case, you, you see how there's a sort of a psychological congruence within these records, that the voice of the, of the transfiguration quotes Deuteronomy 18.15, and so does Peter when he preaches in Acts 3. Now, that to me has just the, the ring of truth about it, that if you heard the voice of God actually repeating his own written word in Deuteronomy 18.15, not surprising, therefore, that Peter in his own preaching would be so impressed by that that he would quote that verse. Absolute. Uh, yeah, th th these records are not cunningly devised fables. Forget the higher critics and the people who simply don't have the faith to believe in them because they've got their own little unconscious agendas to be disobedient, basically, to God's word. That's where all the, the idea comes from, that they, you can't rely on the Bible. Well, it's just the words of men. No, no, no. You read these records sensitively. The internal congruence, I would argue, is absolutely fantastic evidence. For me, I'm not so interested in so-called fulfilled prophecy. Uh, I'm not so switched on by idea of, of preservation of manuscripts and all that sort of thing. All that is sort of extra-biblical. Uh, what I'm saying is that by reading these records just for what they are, the internal congruence within them is to me enough. And I, I would dare to say that that's how it's meant to be, because not everyone has access to evidence of fulfilled prophecy. Not everybody uh, has access to all the latest research of archaeologists, etc., about which codex has been discovered, where and when, uh, etc. 
taste and see that the Lord is good. And, and by, by reading and rereading these records sensitively, it, it, as I say, that internal congruence is, is so powerful. And I believe that that is the intended evidence that God gives uh, that his word in the Bible is indeed his word. Well, they fell on their face, uh, which again is what, what, what Moses did, um, and yet falling on the face is typically associated with a, a feeling of unworthiness. In the Old Testament, Joseph's brothers, Abraham, Balaam, Joshua, Ruth, Nebuchadnezzar even, um, so they, they felt very unworthy to, to be there. And especially with Daniel, they are, yeah, he fell on his face and sort of said, who am I? And then the angel lifts him up. And this is exactly what the Lord does to them here. Um, they are lifted up. He touches them, verse 7, and the other record it says that he lifted them up. He stood them up and said, be not afraid. This is Daniel 10. And again they were thinking, who am I as a secular bloke in, within Judaism, a nominal a synagogue attendee? Who am I? Who am I to, to be Daniel? Who am I to enter the cloud of glory? And as I say, this, this is for every one of us. Who am I? Who am I to be a preacher? Who am I to, to do the Lord's work? Let me just go to church once or twice a week or whatever, and I put some money in the collection, and I do my thing, and I keep my nose clean plus minus in life. No, no. Yeah, sure, I'm not knocking that, but, but the whole point is that there is so much more that we are called to do. But these Bible heroes, which are brought before us in the pages of the Scriptures, that, that we can rise up to their level. And it is very ordinary people, often very secular, non-religious people, who are often used by God to the maximum extent, because they, they grasp this, that, wow, I, even I, me, even me, I, I, I can, I'm asked to rise up to the spirit of these, these men like Daniel and Moses, etc., and Paul is full of encouraging uh, his converts to, to see themselves as Moses, especially in this context in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where in the RV we read that he, he actually he says that we each with unveiled face beheld the glory of the Lord and are changed into that same image, just as Moses with unveiled face stood before the angel of the Lord and the glory of the angel was reflected onto his face and he was, as it were, changed into that same image of glory. And we each, each of us, and that's the point that he's getting over to Corinth, each of you, you who are so weak, you, some of you have doubts about the resurrection of Jesus, you who are sleeping around, you who are getting drunk at the breaking of bread, each of you, not just your leadership, not just the, the good ones, you know, the, the keen ones, we each, with unveiled face, he says, behold the glory of the Lord, just as Moses did. The illusion is obvious to Moses. Now, all this was, uh, of course, very hard for them to take on board. And the Lord says to them, be not afraid, uh, in verse 8. And I think when he says, be not afraid, I don't think he's simply saying, oh, don't be scared, all the, you know, the, the cloud and the, the voice from heaven and the glory. And Moses and Elijah are like, yeah, don't worry, guys, it's all, you know, you, you're going to live. Um, yeah, there was that. But I think also the idea that, look here, you can be as Moses, as Daniel. He's saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the height of the calling, because I'm with you. 
And I think that is the message to us. We who don't see bright lights and enter into clouds, but all the same, the calling to us comes through. To behold, as I say, with unveiled face the Lord's glory, and to rise up to the spirit of Moses, Daniel, etc. And fear not. You, know, you can do it. And really, this is the Lord's whole point when he says, be not afraid. He says, tell the vision to no man. Verse 9, till the Son of Man be risen from the dead. And it is a vision, and I think that that to me is the, the answer as to, well, what were Moses and Elijah doing there? Well, you could say they were resurrected. Uh, Jesus was the first person to be given eternal life. He was the first fruits from the dead. So they had not been eternally alive since the point of their deaths. That, that is not the case. Um, this was a vision. Uh, and I, I think that's, that's as simple as that. Mark says that they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. They were really far off because the idea of bodily resurrection was fairly common within Judaism. The Pharisees believed that the dead would rise, the Sadducees didn't, but it, it was a, uh, a live issue under debate in Judaism. And just as a little window, I think, into how secular were the disciples, Peter, James, and John anyway, that they didn't know, they didn't get what's this rising from the dead. So they said, why then do the scribes say, verse 10, that uh, Elijah's got to come first? Now, the disciples had far too much respect for the scribes. And he had to warn them specifically against the scribes and Pharisees on a number of occasions. He had to basically warn them, Matthew 23, don't address the rabbis as father. Uh, they had too much respect for them. And they come running to Jesus uh, in Matthew 15 and say, Lord, didn't you, didn't you realize the Pharisees are really upset by what you said? They took far too much notice of these guys. So their idea was, well, if you're really Messiah, well, where was Elijah? Uh, guys, come on. John the Baptist clearly set himself up as the Elijah prophet. I mean, he dressed like Elijah. He purposefully alluded to Elijah. Now, they, they clearly didn't get that. They clearly didn't get it. I mean, wasn't it obvious to them that, it, that John had been the Elijah prophet? And clearly not. I think what you see all through is their tremendous loyalty to the Lord, despite a lack of knowledge. Or, let's say, a mistaken knowledge. Like when they say, oh, he's when he goes to heal Lazarus, to raise Lazarus, they say, oh, well, let's go, that we might die with him. Yeah, they totally don't get what he's talking about. They don't perceive it, but they're willing to die with him. And... Time and again you see this, and I think we can pause and take a bit of a lesson there, because we all, I guess, wonder what is the fate, as it were, of, of those who don't know that much correctly about theology, about the doctrine of Jesus, etc. And yet they appear to have very committed lives to him. And suddenly in the tradition that I came from, one would say, yeah, well, look, if they've got wrong doctrine, if they don't understand enough, well, all that devotion to Jesus is all by the or there. Well, let's think about the disciples, because they were in that position. They also didn't get it. They didn't get it even about the Lord's death and resurrection, as he kind of rebukes them for when he rises from the dead. 
they had not really grasped his teaching. And of course it's the disciples who, humanly, wrote the gospel records. And so they're really laboring their own slowness to understand and inviting others to do better in, in responding better. What I would say, then, is that although the Lord accepted the disciples, just as I believe he accepts the devotions of those who are in ignorance of certain uh, true, let's say, pieces of theology, and those who maybe misunderstand bits and pieces of theology, I would say this, that the Lord will try to teach them. He'll try to educate them, as he tried with the disciples, and they got it in the end. Cornelius would be the classic case. He served God, paid his tithes, was generous to the Jewish people, etc. And therefore, Peter was sent to him to show him the true way and to baptize him. So, although on one hand, yes, God will accept those who are not unbelievers, but are what we might consider misbelievers, uh, I wouldn't just leave the observation there. I would go further and say that the Lord will also seek to educate them, and that is where... I think we may play a role, or we do play a role, we should play a role in their lives. It's not as if, oh, well, you don't believe what we do, therefore you shall not be saved. It's more, you know, your loyalty to Jesus is wonderful, but uh, like with Apollos, etc., let me explain to you the way of the Lord more perfectly. And if they truly have a heart for God and for the Lord Jesus, they will accept, they will accept the teaching of, of his word. Now, why then, why then was there this great uh, response to Elijah by the Jewish population? When Jesus says uh, here um, <clears throat> that basically uh, Elijah has still got to come, verse 11. Elijah must still come and restore all things. The restoration had not been achieved then by John the Baptist. So Jesus is saying that, look, um, Elijah has come, that is in John, verse 12, uh, but they knew him not. They didn't recognize him as Elijah. So then, why did they all go out into the wilderness, get baptized, repent, etc., if Jesus says, well, they didn't really get it, they didn't really understand John, they knew him not, didn't recognize him as Elijah? Well, I would say that People like a hard line. They respond well to it. And there was John yelling at them like, you sinners, you real bad lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. What have I got to do? You've got to be baptized. Oh, man, baptize me. They were trekking out. It says all Jerusalem, a lot of people, that is, from Jerusalem, went all the way to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Well, that's quite a step. It had been quite a journey for people to make. And yet, going further, the Qumran documents show that Israel at that time believed that there would be a great repentance when Elijah comes and when the Messiah comes he would be heralded by Elijah and at that time Israel would repent and that the faithful would go out into the wilderness to meet the Elijah prophet. So, and you're going to look at my, my, my notes on this uh, online, gospelstudies.net, and you'll you know, you see the, the, the references. Um, so, what they were saying, what Israel was saying was, we want to see Messiah come. Oh, there's got to be a repentance in Israel. We're all going to go out and meet Elijah. Oh, sure, let's go out and into the wilderness. John, yeah, you can be Elijah for us. And yeah, sure, we'll repent, be baptized, whatever. But it was really 
fulfilling their own little religious ideas. And Jesus says here, they knew him not, verse 12. Elijah has come already in the form of John the Baptist, but they didn't recognize him. Well, they apparently claim that they did, but they didn't. And this is the delusion that can come over religious people. It's like someone who falls in love with somebody else, but they don't really fall in love with the person. They fall in love with the image that they have of that person. You know, they, they, the girl imagines that this guy is, is strong and, and he's wonderful and he's very good at fixing the house and fixing the car and that he's going to be absolutely faithful to her. She, her image of the husband is that he's wealthy and that he always provides the money and he always this, that and the other. And she finds that actually this, this guy I married is not like that. And that's because she fell in love with an image which she then uh, transferred onto the, the poor guy. Um, uh, and this is what can happen. This is what happened with John the Baptist. They transferred onto him all their messianic expectations, all their little theologies, etc. And yet they didn't actually hear what John was really saying because John talked about Jesus. And they didn't really accept that because they, they crucified Jesus. They rejected him. And yet they're very loyal to John. Uh, all men counted him as a prophet, we read. That's a warning then for, for us. And Jesus says they did to him whatever they wanted. That is, they, uh, and likewise the Son of Man will suffer of them. So he's saying that this generation killed John the Baptist, made him suffer and killed him. Now the obvious objection to that is, no, 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 they didn't. It was Herod who did that. It was Herod and his corrupt little bunch of courtiers and Herodias. Uh, it was them. It was them who killed uh, John the Baptist, not the generation of Israel. They all thought he was a prophet, a good guy. And Jesus says, no, you did this to him. And I think that he's saying, really, um, that... You totally, you as the generation, you actually killed him. You did not accept him. You did not know him, as it says in verse 12. And then 13, the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Well, in chapters 12 and 13, as we looked at uh, earlier, the Lord explained at length there in those chapters how Israel had not understood but the disciples had understood. And he, at the end of chapter 13, 1351, he says to the disciples, have you understood all this? And they said, yes, 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 we have. But now, only now, we read that they understood. It's like asking children, do you understand? Yes, 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 we understand. When they don't, they don't understand the concepts or the words that you've used. And so, I think you see there how the Lord Jesus counted them as understanding far more than they did. And... This is imputed righteousness. This is how he deals with us. He looks at us as if we have far more righteousness than we, we really do. And he's so positive about them in many ways. And yet his positivity about them paid off because in the end they did understand and they came to be what he imputed to them. It's rather like trusting somebody who's maybe not initially that trustworthy. In the end, it can be that your trust pays off. Who you uh, wish them to be and treat them as being, they become. 
And I think that in practice is one outworking of imputed righteousness. And I see that in Romans. Uh, Romans 1 to 8, imputed righteousness all the way through. And then uh, after the break, talking about uh, Israel as the great example of imputed righteousness and grace, then from chapter 12 to 16 in Romans, you've got a load of practical stuff. And the practical stuff is connected with the, the theory of imputed righteousness. In other words, be in practice who you are counted to be by status. Well, they come down from the mountain, and what do they find? That the that this lunatic child, this uh, one who was mentally ill, one literally moonstruck, an example of language of the day being used to, to describe illness, uh, that he's, this child has thrown himself into the fire and into the water, and the disciples can't heal him. And this is very much the picture of how Moses comes down from the mountain and finds the weak, faithless Israel. Now, throwing into the fire and into the water, this is what happens in the, the biblical metaphors to the condemned. They are thrown into fire, plunged uh, into the deep, or thrown into, into the fire and, and water. So I think that this, this poor person, this young man, uh, felt that he was condemned. And so I, I would argue that the, the Lord's healing of this, this person was not only by direct kind of touch, a bolt of spirit, as it were, just making the sick person better, but also you could argue that a lot of the curing of mental illness which the Lord achieved, what the record calls casting out demons, would have been achieved also by him as a person and the message of forgiveness which was in him. Because if this man really grasped that I am forgiven, no more jumping into fire and water, no more self-harm, no more desire to condemn yourself, if you realize that there is one person who can remove condemnation from you, and that was Jesus, and he did that. Well, in Mark 9, 23, the, the father of, of the child is asked whether, whether he can believe, and he says, I, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm sure we all said that and felt that about ourselves. I think it just shows how uh, faith and unbelief can coexist within a person. It's not uh, absolute uh, in a sense, and yet in another sense it is an absolute, because Jesus says to the disciples when they say, why couldn't we cure him? He says, because of your unbelief. Well, I'm sure they weren't atheists. I'm sure they didn't have zero faith. But the Lord is there, talking as he does in John's Gospel, as if faith is you either got it or you haven't. You couldn't do this because you didn't believe. You're like, yeah, well, we do believe. He said, you know, this requires prayer and fasting. Well, I'm pretty sure they would have prayed before attempting to do the cure. But the Lord is saying you can pray on a surface level and that doesn't count. There's prayer on a surface level and there's the real prayer. Just like any spiritual attribute or spiritual activity, you can love, but it's not the real love. There's love unfeigned. There's faith unfeigned. And there's the, quote, faith, which is just hoping for the best. There's repentance on the, the level that Judas repented on, sort of regret and no more. And there's the true repentance, as Peter had uh, at the same time, actually, having done, in essence, the same thing as what Judas did, betraying the Lord. Well, Jesus also says in Mark 9 to the father of the child, uh, who says to him, like, if you can do anything, please do. He says, if you can believe, 
all things are possible to him who believes. So this man sort of had the attitude that a lot of people have. Well, look, if you can do anything, well, please, obviously, please do, if you can. And the Lord takes that up and says, look, it's not as if my possibilities are somehow limited, as if, well, if you can help within the limits of your limitations, well, please do. Um, he says, look, I, I can do anything. If you can believe, all things are possible, not to me, but to you, if you can believe. He's saying, look, you've got your hand on the volume control, not me. Don't talk about my possibilities, if I can do anything. I have unlimited possibility. It depends upon you, whether you will believe. And that is a, a huge challenge to us, because we can so easily assume, when it comes to faith, that God is somehow limited. And, of course, the point is not whether God is limited, that the point is where that we are limited in our understanding, our perception of the situation, and, and ultimately our faith. The Lord in verse 17 is very frustrated. O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Now, this, this is very similar to his father's words in Numbers 14, 27. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation? Now, the Lord could have been quoting purposefully, but I prefer to say it like this, that sometimes a son comes out with a turn of phrase that his father has used, or, or is just the sort of thing that his father would say. I'm sure you've all noticed a child come out with something, and well, maybe the father didn't actually, in your knowledge, actually say those words, but you think, well, he could have done. That's just the sort of thing his father would have said. So I think you see here a window into the, the closeness of the father and son, that the same style of language and thinking is used. And I think you notice here how the Lord was so frustrated at how slow their development was. I mean, when he says, how long, 17, shall I suffer you? Um, you can interpret that and translate that as meaning until when. In other words, he had hope that they would come to a certain point, but he was so frustrated that they were so slow. And when you start looking at your own life, how many times must the Lord have thought that about you and me? That we are so slow to get there. Um, and this frustration that he had was a frustration born out of love. Because he so wanted them to get there. Now, he, he, he says to them, when they say, well, why couldn't we have done this? He says, if you had faith, verse 20, as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, remove, uh, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible to you. It's just what he said in Mark's record to the, the father of the child. Now, the idea of the mountain moving you could interpret in terms of Zechariah 14, where at the coming of Christ, Mount Zion shall be moved. As if he's saying, look, the coming of the kingdom depends on your faith, on your prayer, on your belief, on your spirituality. And uh, that, that is, I think, why there is no calendar date for the Lord's coming. We don't have a date, we have conditions. When the gospel goes to all the world, then shall the end come. When the harvest is ripe, 
then it shall be harvested. But I also wonder if when he talks about this mountain here, he's talking about the mountain of transfiguration. They were standing at the, the foot of that mountain. So if he's saying that uh, these things that you saw up there on the mount, the things of the kingdom, me and my glory, this shall come by your faith, but only by your faith. <coughs> well, he goes on to, to predict his death in verse 22. The Son of Man shall be betrayed, and the Greek word means literally to be handed over. Uh, the Son of Man shall be handed over into the hands of men, uh, and they're exceeding sorry. Um, in Mark, it, it puts it in the present tense. The Son of Man is being handed over, is betrayed, is being delivered into the hands of men. But what did he say? I don't think that the Gospels are just Matthew or Mark given a rough summary. When it says he said this, I believe he said that. So what did he say? Which tense did he use? Because Matthew and Mark use different tenses. Well, I'd say he said the same thing twice. He said the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. The Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men. What he's saying is that the essence of his future sufferings were in essence going on in an ongoing sense during his ministry. And that is a theme that you get so often. And I think what it shows is that the, the cross, the, the final death of the Lord, was not just some sort of unusually great pinnacle in his life. He had lived the essence of that. Rather like in our own lives, life is not the occasional act of commitment. It is a life lived, second by second almost, you know, day by day, hour by hour. Um, and yes, there are particular moments of crisis and commitment and required commitment uh, as there was at, at the cross. Uh, but the essence is not that just now and again you're required to stand up and be counted kind of thing. It's a life lived all the time. Verse 23 says that they were very sorry. And Luke's record in Luke 9.45 says that this saying was hidden from them. And yet the Lord rebukes them for not getting it after he rises from the dead. And yet it was hidden from them. And I think that just shows that if you don't want to understand, then it will be hidden from you. And the other way around as well. If you want to understand, eyes are opened. So it's not that God is passive, facing off against man over an open Bible. He is there, willing to confirm people, uh, and open eyes that want to be opened. That's why we start all these prayers with, with these studies with a prayer, that our eyes might be opened. Now, Luke 9, 46 adds, and then there was a dispute amongst them, who should be the greatest? And you know, when you put the gospel records together, every time there are these predictions of the crucifixion, the disciples change the subject. They start arguing amongst themselves or get distracted. And this, as I alluded to earlier in, our, in this talk, this is our problem. Whenever we come to seriously think about the crucifixion of Jesus, the Son of God, covered in spittle, dying on that stake for me, oh, I've got to phone Johnny. Uh, uh, you know, and the mind wanders off. Well, oh, yeah, well, I know about the crucifixion. Wasn't it terrible? Well, let's read something else. Um, 
And the psychological reason, I suggest, why we have that problem in not being focused upon the cross is the same problem that Peter had, and we saw last time in Matthew 16, where he doesn't want that to happen to Jesus because it implies it must happen to us. Well, this sort of incident is then followed, this prediction is then followed by the incident with the, the tribute money. Well, the tribute money was, was paid, um, uh, the, sort of the, the, the temple tax um, was paid theoretically in order to buy the animals for the sacrifice. And that you could be sort of reckoned as having sacrificed by paying your temple tax. Now, it is the same word, really, for ransom. And, oddly enough, after each of the predictions of the Lord's death, he talks about ransom, giving his life as a ransom. And here in Matthew, after this prediction of the Lord's death, he doesn't. But actually he does, because you have this incident of the, the temple tax and Jesus providing the ransom, as in the piece of money, in the mouth of the fish. But uh, I think more to the point, why does he do this? I mean, he says here, he explains here, that, well, we don't need to do this. We are free. I mean, he was the son of God. But let's do this so that we don't make them stumble. He says, verse 26, they take this of strangers, uh, and therefore we as the children are free. And Peter didn't initially get it, but he did later. And in his letter, first of Peter 2, he says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, unto governors, as free. As free. Verse 26 here, Jesus said to Peter, Then are the children free. So all the way through Peter's pastoral work with others, which is from which arose his letters, um, he is all the time alluding to his own weakness. He is all the time uh, alluding back to these incidents in the Gospels. And that is the basis, it seems to me, of our appeal to others, our preaching, our pastoral work with others. It is a recognition all the time of our own weakness. And that is what will give our work and our appeal credibility. Lest we should offend them, verse 27. That might seem crazy. I mean, who really is going to bother trying to preach to uh, those, uh, those, those sort of leaders of the Jews who were trying to kill Jesus and did kill Jesus? Lest we should offend them. I think you, you see there the huge importance of not causing another person to stumble. Even those whom you might consider totally not interested in the gospel. And come to the book of Acts. You read that a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And later on in Acts 15, what do you read about? The group of the Pharisees who believed. The Lord's hope that these people who were persecuting him, this awful system of, of Jewish leadership, would repent, paid off, because some of them did. Pharisees, scribes, did repent and become Christians. Isn't that incredible? It's like when Jesus uh, cures the, the man of leprosy and says, now go and offer what Moses commanded uh, for a testimony unto them, unto those priests. Now this hope against hope that the Lord had, that even the most totally unlikely of people would 
eventually respond. This is incredible. This is a true pattern for us. And also not only a pattern of hopefulness and witness and never, ever giving up on anyone, never saying, oh, look, he just doesn't get it. He, he's, that one, he never will. No, no, no. Everybody has a hole in their heart, which is the exact shape of Jesus, that he is the key that can actually fill that colossal emptiness and that worried gap which there is inside every human being. It's not just a message of that, to, to be positive and hopeful in our preaching. But also, I think it, it just points up the huge importance of do not offend. Do not make others to stumble. Because Jesus talks about not making others stumble so much, he almost sees it as the epitome of, of sin. We've got to be so sensitive to the outcome of our actions, decisions, etc. on others. And there's a, a spirit in the world and a spirit amongst uh, believers as well that says, well, look, okay, this is the truth and well, that's what I'm going to stand on and I, I don't really care how you respond to that. That's your problem. Uh, there's this terrible quotation from John Thomas that do what is right, sort of believe what is right, and those who are of the truth will sort of applaud you. I mean, I'm paraphrasing slightly. Um, but I know that he says, for all others, you need not care a rush. Well, it's a terrible attitude. No wonder our community got off as, to such a, a not very good, I would say, spiritual start in terms of real spirituality. Now, for the other lot, for those who won't applaud you, sort of for your stand for the truth, you need not care a rush. You needn't care anything. Don't care nothing for those people. This is not the Spirit of Christ. And if we have not the Spirit of Christ, we are none of His. His Spirit was to be desperately concerned about those who contradicted themselves, who did not accept what He was saying, and to do all He could for their salvation. And it's that Spirit which should abide in us. Thank you.